right before the this lesson began, Adam asked me a question. He said, Chuck, now that we're all done with the story of Noah, what are we going to cover next in our class? I told him that I would have a surprise for him, and the surprise is, because I've been telling people for the last several weeks, Noah was was going to be three lessons long. Well, this is part four of the three lessons on Noah. <laughs> because <clears throat> as much time as I took, there were still some important <coughs> lessons in the story of, of Noah. But Noah isn't dead yet. He will unfortunately die in this lesson, but... But uh, where we left off, he, he, was still, he was still living. To recap from the last lesson that we had gone through Genesis, Noah and the, the flood ends. Noah and his descendants were given all the animals to eat. However, there was one thing they were told that they couldn't eat, which was what? Okay, and, and from Acts 15, we know that restriction still applies to us today, that, uh, that, that we, the Christians are supposed to avoid blood, that there's something very special about blood, the life is in the blood, which to me gives greater significance to when we take the Lord's Supper in the blood of Christ. The second thing is God made a covenant. God put his bow, the rainbow, into the clouds as a sign to remind us and to remind him of the covenant that he made that he would never again destroy the world by water. Of course, Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, the next time it will be by fire instead. And then we spent some time in the last lesson also, something else that Peter pointed out in 1 Peter chapter 3, he said the, 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 flood, the water in the flood of Noah was a type, and the antitype of that is baptism, which now saves us also. So the flood of Noah, in which only a righteous few were saved through the water, Peter explains as a foreshadowing of baptism. We looked at what Jesus taught about baptism, what Peter and Paul said about baptism, and how this was understood by the early Christians, all of which is completely consistent. So I want to pick up in Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. And I'm reading on a, a translation based on the, the Septuagint, which is uh, really not that much different than, than what uh, most people are familiar with. So I'm going to read... In Genesis chapter 9, verses 18, down through the end of the chapter, in verse 29. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. So he drank from the wine and was drunk and naked in his house. Now Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. Since their faces were turned away, they did not see his nakedness. Thus, when Noah became sober... And knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, 
he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the habitations of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant as well. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So the earth is repopulated by Noah's three descendants, the, the, his three sons and, and their wives. They the, they're basically go out and repopulate the earth after that. It says that Noah is a husbandman, he's a farmer, he plants a vineyard, drinks of its wine, and he gets drunk. So while I wasn't planning necessarily to take a look at this, at the sin of drunkenness, here it is in the Bible, that Noah, a spiritual hero, falls into a rather common sin of drunkenness, just like David, who's a spiritual hero, uh, to many of us, fell into the sin of adultery in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So I want to talk a little bit about alcohol, because this is where it, this is, shows up here, alcohol and drunkenness. Now, a little bit of my own background, because everyone comes into this with their own cultural baggage and their own experience. Some people grew up in households where there was absolutely no drinking at all. Some people grew up in households where there were they had alcoholic parents or where there was a lot of alcohol around. So we're coming, we're, we're a, a group here coming from very diverse backgrounds. My own experience, I grew up Roman Catholic. The dominance influence, dominant influence being perhaps the Irish side of the family. And so you can guess what my own experience was. You can take a pretty good guess being here in Boston about my own experience with alcohol. Um, my friends that I grew up with, I went to Catholic school and, the, and the, my uh, fellow classmates were generally from either Italian or Irish backgrounds as well growing up in New Jersey. So everybody I knew drank alcohol, family and friends. I have a hard time thinking of anybody I knew who didn't drink. The alcohol was so widespread that it never occurred to me when I grew up in New Jersey that there were parts of the world where no one drank alcohol or there were communities or cultures where alcohol was frowned upon because everybody I knew drank. Never, also never occurred to me that this would be a serious spiritual problem, drinking, because it was so much part of the culture. Then later on in life, I went to a church, which was Church of Christ, in some ways more like a Protestant church, where many of the people who were leading the church came out of the South. And so I was first introduced to people who were really down on alcohol and drinking. And I thought, oh, this must be a Southern thing, because there's nothing in the Bible about this, certainly. That was my initial reaction. And... Um, <laughs> Those of us who were in the church who were from maybe Southern European background, the Irish uh, or, or you know Irish or or uh, Italian or French backgrounds would think, well, that's kind of strange. But that, there was a little bit of a culture clash with the people coming out of the South versus people who uh, grew up with the more recent European descent who thought this was odd. 
So that was my reaction was those who were abstaining from alcohol, this was a holdover of some kind of southern fundamentalist mentality and tradition that what I wasn't used to. Over time, the church that I was going to, which had a strong bias against alcohol, started to relax its attitudes about alcohol. So all of a sudden, instead of alcohol being very much in the background, it became highly accepted because people looked and they said, so there was, there was I, I can't remember after that time, there was, there, was a, there was a teaching that alcohol is okay, and I don't remember after that time uh, much of anything in the way of teaching about drunkenness either. And what I noticed happening over time was alcohol came more and more into the church and people started having problems with alcohol, of drinking too much. Still later on, I came in contact with people from the Anabaptist and uh, conservative Mennonite world. And I, I learned that in those circles, if you, were, if you told somebody that you drink wine, well, boy, you get in all kinds of trouble. I mean, they, they, could, they could ostracize you, they could put you out, that people really look down on you. Is that the drinking alcohol is just something you just didn't do in those circles, in conservative Anabaptist Mennonite circles. So this was, this was different to me. And then later on, which really surprised me, I was talking to a friend who he and his wife were both raised Old Order Amish. This is traditional horse and buggy Amish. And I figured, well, they're probably just like the other Anabaptists, only even more conservative. And he said, actually, in the Amish, among the Amish, the people would make their own wine and, and, and drink that. So I, that, I was just, it, it's just completely bewildering all the different attitudes that people have towards alcohol. So in the midst of, of all of this, I think it's a good idea if we just let's, let's set our own cultural background and baggage aside and let's look at what does the New Testament say about alcohol, good and bad. So uh, actually, Jesus talked about alcohol more than, more than I realized when I started to dig into this. In Matthew, chap Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus tells several parables to heighten our awareness about his second coming and what we need to do to be prepared and ready when he returns. The sheep and the goats, he tells uh, the, the parable of the talents, he says several different parables along that line. And one of the parables... He tells the story in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. He tells the parable of two servants who the master sets over his household, a wise servant and a foolish servant. The wise one feeds and takes care of his fellow servants. And so when the master returns, he's happy with him. In contrast, the foolish or evil servant it says, and I'm quoting from the passage, this is Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. It says, he, he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. And Jesus says that when the master returns at an unexpected hour, he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is warning about First of all, we need to be feeding and taking care of our fellow servants. And then the other thing is you've got to be careful that you don't just start hanging out and drinking with the drunkards, becoming complacent before his return and slipping back into the world. 
In Luke 21, verses 34 to 36, there's a similar warning about his second coming. And there Jesus says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, that the day will come on you unexpectedly. That's the day of Jesus' return at the second coming. Watch, therefore, and pray also. So Jesus is warning us that we don't slip into drunkenness before his return. Let's also take a look at what the apostles had to say. This is what Jesus warns us about the dangers of drunkenness. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. I think this is, this is very telling. Peter is writing to Christians who presumably have come out of pagan backgrounds, and maybe some of you can relate to this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, he says, Peter says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So, obviously, this is the life that a lot of the Christians had come out of. A completely pagan, worldly life with a lots, of, lots of alcohol abuse, drinking parties, drunkenness, pagan revelry, and idolatry. They come out of that, and they're getting, the Christians are getting criticized for no longer living that way. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. Here, Paul is addressing Christians as a warning to them. So this is written to Christians. Paul says, Galatians 5, 19 and 21, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in past time, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's warning the Christians, if you go back to that way of life, you will be cast out of the kingdom of God. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, Paul admonishes the Christians saying, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor cut of covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I know that the circles that I ran in as a young man, people would consider drunkenness as just, hey, that's just something you do on Friday night and Saturday night before you go to church on Sunday morning. Not a big deal. But Paul's attitude says, 
people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the conclusions about drunkenness based on what Jesus and the apostles said. First of all, drunkenness is a very serious sin. Jesus warned the Christians, Jesus warned us not to get complacent and and, and ensnared in this before he returns. The other thing, throughout history, drunkenness has been closely associated with casting off all restraint and getting involved in even more sin, particularly immorality, idolatry, pagan revelry, and violence. They're all associated with drunkenness. In the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, verses 18 and 19, Moses and Joshua are coming down from the mountain of being with God. Moses has the Ten Commandments, and Joshua notices a very loud and disturbing sound. And he says to Moses, It's the noise of those that begin the banquet of wine that I hear. And then it goes on to say that the people are involved in dancing and worshiping the golden calf. So this is alcohol involved with the sin of idolatry. And most of the time, he's all like, oh, I'm not happy about this. That's right. He's very upset about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7, Paul is warning the Christians about don't fall into the same four sins that people fell into in the wilderness. And the first one is, I believe, the first one is idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, he says, these sins kept them out of making it to the promised land. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7, Paul says, and do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So we see the same thing today. Getting intoxicated, whether it's at college drinking parties or singles bars or whatever, it ends up numbing people's consciences, deadening their inhibitions, and is classically the prelude to getting involved with all kinds of sexual immorality, violence, and other even more serious sin. The other thing about drunkenness, drunkenness is treated in the Bible as a sin, not as a disease. Now, certainly some people are more susceptible to it than others. You may have a weakness in your character that you were born with. So some people just, if you take one drink, it's extremely hard for them to stop. So obviously they need to stop right there. But it's treated in the Bible as a spiritual as, as, as a spiritual sin that people need to repent of and exhibit self-control around. Mm-hmm. Just like every sin, I, I don't want to look down on people who, who struggle with that sin. Certain people struggle with one sin, certain people struggle with another one. But P, Peter and Paul were addressing disciples who obviously had been very worldly and involved, been involved in this sin along with all the others before they became Christians. So they had repented of it. People can too as, uh, today as well. Amen. Now next question, uh, which is a question I never would have asked growing up as a, as a Roman Catholic, 
is, are Christians permitted to drink any alcohol at all, such as wine? Now, to some people, the answer would be an obvious, well, of course, but to other people, it's not so obvious. I want to just take a look at that for a few minutes. In Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, Jesus makes an interesting observation. Jesus says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, is any was one word in that uh, jump out at you there? A little unfamiliar word. <laughs> Wine bibber. This is the new King James. This is a modernization of the King James, but uh, I guess they wanted to hang on to that word there. Uh, Wine bibber. And I looked in my my trusty Noah Webster 1828 uh, dictionary of the American the American Dictionary of the English Language. And the definition, as you would guess, is one who drinks much wine. That's a wine bibber. So the contract, now, now uh, we know from Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 15, when John the Baptist, before he was born, he was set apart from birth as, as someone like a Nazarite, who maybe he was a Nazarite, who would drink no wine. So the contrast is they're saying, Jesus is saying, look, John the Baptist didn't drink wine, and you say that he's demon-possessed, and I do drink wine, and you say I'm a drunkard. So uh, I'm, 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 I'm drinking too much wine, basically. So Jesus was criticized for that. Now, did Jesus, this is, in some circles, believe it or not, this is a, this, I'm pushing the envelope here, but let's ask an obvious question. Did Jesus drink wine? Yes, he did, okay? Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. After tasting the wine that Jesus made out of the water, the master of the feast goes to the groom in John chapter 2 verse 10 and says, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you kept the good wine until now. Now, we all know what's going on here is this is alcoholic wine, it's at a wedding, and after the people have had too much to drink, then they slip in the cheap stuff after that. That's because they can't tell the difference at that point in time. So he's saying, but you but you brought the, the best wine until last. So uh, obviously Jesus turned the water into wine. It wasn't grape juice, and Jesus drank wine and even got his enemies were accusing him, were, were hurling that in him, and, and Jesus says, that he's, contra- he's contrasted with John the Baptist, who obviously d- drank no alcohol. So, pretty clear that Jesus drank and made alcoholic wine. This wasn't grape juice. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 14 that all types of meat and drink are from God, and they're all acceptable to us, provided we don't violate our consciences. So, obviously... If somebody thinks it's wrong to eat something or to drink something, they shouldn't do it. So if your conscience tells you that it's wrong to drink alcohol, I'd be the last person in the world to try to convince you to do otherwise. You definitely need to follow your conscience. And we should also respect the consciences of others who may have different restrictions for their own reasons in their mind. Particularly if someone 
came from a background where they saw a lot of alcohol abuse, they may have deep convictions, I never want to touch this my whole life because I've seen the damage that it's caused. Or I've, or I've been beaten by an alcoholic uh, father or mother and who has very strong convictions about that, and, and we need to, we need to respect, respect that for whatever reason. One of the qualifications for a bishop or elder that's given in 1 Timothy 3.3 and also Titus 1.7 is he is not given to wine. Paul also says in Titus 2 verse 3 that the older women who are to be teaching the younger ones to be good, good wives and mothers is they should not be given to much wine. So obviously this is, this is a concern in the, in the members of the church says they can't drink anything, but just, just that they not be given to wine, they, they must not be uh, given to much wine. And as everyone remembers, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, don't just drink water, but also use a little wine for your stomach's sake. So I don't know what his problem was, but uh, some, some either digestion or parasite, who knows what it was, but he's, he's using the wine there for some kind of a medicinal purpose, I would assume. So the takeaways that I would get from looking at all the scriptures about attitude towards wine and alcohol, number one, we have to recognize drunkenness is a serious sin. Despite how popular it is in the working world or on the campuses or in different subcultures, that drunkenness is a serious sin and people need to repent of it who are involved in it if they're going to become Christians and we need to be vigilant about this in our own lives afterward. And also, to be our brother's keepers, be looking out for each other too if you see that somebody has a weakness in this area. That you can lose your salvation over drunkenness. Also, Jesus drank wine, not grape juice, and he was even criticized for it. So I don't see... Uh, while, while Paul teaches clearly that drunkenness is a sin, and, and we don't never want to do anything that, that violates our consciences, there is inherently nothing wrong with drinking wine in moderation. I mean, I, I will have a glass of wine uh, occasionally with dinner, and, uh, but I know people who don't drink at all, and it, it shouldn't be an issue. And if somebody has a problem with drinking, I don't want to drink in front of them and cause them to stumble. So, obviously, for those who are prone to over-drinking or drunkenness, who are predisposed toward that, it's best to not drink at all. I think it was Tertullian said, better to kill the cub than the full-grown lion. It's, uh, you know, but, but better to nip it off before it gets out of control. And, and I think, personally, the same principle should apply here to any intoxicating drug, particularly here in Massachusetts, the laws are changing, and now, in this case, marijuana is becoming legal. So, well, what do we do with that? Well, the attitude should be the same. Getting intoxicated is not okay. We don't want to do that as Christians, regardless whether it's a prescri- abuse of prescription drugs or it's substances that uh, may be coming legal in the future, that this is off limits for Christians. And then, and then last, a reminder, even Noah... Even Noah, as great as he was in standing out and living in the midst of a corrupt generation and everything else, even Noah fell into this sin, so let's not ever think that we're, we're above it, that we couldn't be tempted by it or fall into it ourselves. So continuing with the story of Noah, as we talked about, 
Ham sees his father drunk and naked in the house. He goes out and tells his two brothers, his two older brothers, Shem, Shem and Japheth. And they treat their father respectfully. They won't look on his nakedness, and they walk in backwards and cover him up very respectfully. After Noah becomes sober, he directs a curse on Ham's descendant Canaan as a result of what Ham did. And then Noah lives for 350 years after the flood, and he dies at the age of 950 years old. So I want to take a look back. So now that Noah has, has died, I want us just to take a look back at, at something we hadn't talked about here. There was a reference, the book in, in the Old Testament. Now, some people in this room will have this book in your Bibles and some won't. It's, it's the Wisdom of Solomon. And actually, it's by a Jewish author. It's found in, this book is found in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, and it may surprise, surprise you to know that in the original King James, the 1611 edition, the original King James, it was included in there also. It was only taken out over a period of time. And if even if you, have, if you have a Catholic Bible or an Orthodox Bible, or even if you have a very old King James family Bible that's been around for a few generations, it will be in there. So it was the original King James was later taken out. The Wisdom of Solomon chapters 13 to 15, there's an extended discussion about the foolishness of idolatry. It's very similar to me to Isaiah chapter 44. And he's talking about the foolishness of people worshiping gods that are made out of metal or stone or wood or clay. Within the context, Wisdom chapter 14 is a discussion about wood in connection with, with a, a general treatise on idolatry. And he says that one craftsman can take wood and form it into something useful in life savings. We've got Chris, Chris is a carpenter here, so you can take some encouragement for that, that that's, that's held up, doing good things with wood. And he gives them example of someone who makes a boat at sea. While another man can turn it into something evil and destructive, a piece of wood, which would be a god that people would bow down and worship. In the midst of this chapter, there's a, very, uh, uh, there's a verse that I found was very interesting, and, and I'd like to share it with you. It's Rhythm of Solomon, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. It ties back into the story of Noah. I'm going to read from, from that book. It says, For even in the beginning, when arrogant giants perished, the hope of the world took refuge in a boat. And piloted by your hand, it left to the world the seed for a family. For the wood was blessed through which righteousness comes. Wow, what is that talking about? Well, obviously this is talking about the story of the flood. That the wood was used for noble purpose in saving the human race in the story of the flood, the time when there were giants in the world. We know what that's talking about. But it says, the hope of the world, who left to the world the seed for a family, took refuge there. When you think of the hope of the world, who do you think about? I think about Jesus. 
And also the statement, the wood was blessed through which righteousness comes. What do you think that might be talking about? What do you think about? I think about the cross. Absolutely, the cross of Christ. Is this a prophecy about Jesus? Is the story of Noah and the flood foreshadowing how salvation would come through the wood and the hope of the world would bring it? So again, this is by a Jewish writer writing before the time of Christ. A very, very intriguing passage. Uh, Justin Martyr, who's, who's obviously talking about this, this uh, very passage in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 14, in chapter 138 of his dialogue with Trypho, it's writing around the year 160 AD, he's making the point that Noah actually foreshadows <laughs> Jesus. And I'm going to read from that. He says, Justin says, For Christ being the firstborn over every creature became again the chief of another race, regenerated through himself by water and faith and wood, containing the mystery of the cross. Even as Noah was saved by wood when he rode over the water with his household. Justin later concludes, but the whole earth, as scripture says, was inundated and the water rose in height 15 cubits above the mountains. So it is evident that it was not spoken to the land, but to the people who obeyed him, for whom also he had before prepared a resting place in Jerusalem, as was previously demonstrated by all the symbols of the deluge. I mean by water, faith, and wood. Those who were afore prepared, and who repent of their sins which they have committed, shall escape the impending judgment of God. So Justin makes a connection that Noah foreshadowed Christ, one man saving the whole world through the combination of faith, wood, and water. Just as today we are saved by three, the same three things, our faith in Jesus Christ, his crucifixion on the wooden cross for us, and the waters of baptism where we are buried with Christ and born again to a new life. This water and wood connection is commented on by several early Christian writers. The Epistle of Barnabas is one of the earliest Christian writings. Barnabas saw this as being foreshadowed, the water and wood connection, from Psalm 1-3, where it says, The man is blessed, he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that produces its fruit in season. Its leaf shall not wither, and whatever it does shall prosper. We know that. The wood and the water coming together. After quoting a passage, Barnabas comments, and I'm reading directly from him, Mark how he has described at once both the water and the cross. For these words imply, Blessed are they who, placing their trust in the cross, have gone down in the water. For, says he, they shall receive their reward in due time. Then he declares, I will recompense them, but now he says, their leaves shall not fade. This means every word which proceeds out of your mouth in faith and love shall tend to bring conversion and hope to many. Now whether you agree with Barnabas's connection here or not, some people may say, well that makes sense. Some people say, well I don't exactly see that. I want to share some other examples that Justin Martyr points out, writing around the year 160, 
and dialogue with Trypho. He gave several examples from the Old Testament. He's arguing with a Jew, explaining how God was showing in the Hebrew Scriptures that it would be through water and wood that we would be saved, that God would bring about something amazing through the water and the wood. He points to the Psalm 1 example, which, which uh, uh, Barnabas had mentioned here earlier. He also mentions Genesis 30, verses 37 to 43, where he says that Jacob peeled the wooden branches and put them in the water troughs, which changed the sheep and out of which Jacob was able to build a flock for himself, the water and the wood coming together to bring something miraculous. In Exodus 14, Moses raises the wooden staff and parts the waters of the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, verses 16 to 21 the water and the wood together. When the Israelites reach the other side and they don't have any water, they run into the waters of Marah, which are bitter and undrinkable. Moses casts a piece of wood into the water, making the water sweet and drinkable. That's Exodus 15, verses 22 to 25. Of course, Moses used the wooden staff to bring water from the rock, Exodus 17, verses 5 to 7. And another one that, he, that uh, Justin points out, which you may not have thought of, David wrote, writes about your rod and your staff, they comfort me, in the 23rd Psalm, verse 4. He con- Justin connects that to the cross. But right before that, David also says, In verses 2 and 3, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 23rd Psalm. And Elisha, when the people lose an axe head, he casts a stick of wood into the river so the lost iron axe floats. Again, the water and the wood bringing about something miraculous. Early Christian writers saw many examples where amazing and miraculous things happened when water, faith, and wood all intersect and come together. And it all started with the story of Noah's Ark. They saw how God was planning to save us once again through faith and wood and water. So maybe as we're putting Noah to rest here, we can take one last look back at him and see, was he, as Justin suggests here, was he actually foreshadowing Jesus? Was he a type with Jesus the antitype? Let's look at, let's recount the story here, looking at that. First of all, he was the one man whom God used to save the entire human race. Second, he became the second Adam from whom all are descended, effectively. Third, he did everything exactly as God told him. Fourth, as Peter points out in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he was a famous preacher of righteousness. Fifth, through him a remnant, a righteous few would be saved while most would be destroyed. Sixth, he saved some of all kinds. On the ark with him, he had the clean and the unclean, the Jews and the Gentiles, some of all kinds. Go make disciples of every nation. Seventh, he saved them by faith, water, and wood. Eighth, 
Uh, you may get a chuckle out of this. Uh, both of them were accused of drinking too much wine. So in, in, uh, in Noah's case, he actually did. In Jesus' case, of course, he did not. For Luke chapter 7. And then ninth, both of them brought in a new covenant. Noah brought in the rainbow covenant, and Jesus brought in the new covenant that was prophesied also. So is this a coincidence, or is Noah's, the story of Noah given to us to teach us yet one more lesson to foreshadow the coming of Jesus, our Savior? So I'd like to close our lesson there. I think it's appropriate to end with my, this is the fourth part of the three-part series on uh, Noah. On Noah. Uh, That's right. The conclusion from this lesson, first of all, even a hero of faith like Noah can fall into drunkenness. So none of us is above it. We have to be vigilant. While the New Testament gives us the freedom to drink wine in moderation, drunkenness is a serious sin that will disqualify us from the kingdom of God. So we need to watch this in our own lives and also be looking out for it in each other's lives. Also, it's amazing the things that happen. Open your eyes as we're reading the Old Testament stories. When wood, faith, and water come together, early Christian writers saw this as a foreshadowing of how God was ultimately going to be saving us. Also, in many ways, Noah was a type or pattern of Christ, the one man through whom the whole world would be saved. And as we, as we look back on the last four lessons that we've had on Noah, it really struck me, we preached practically the entire gospel in just reading through the story of Noah and seeing what it has to offer. We have the example of what does it mean to have saving faith held up in Hebrews chapter 11. Noah believed and obeyed God. He, he not only believed, but he did what God told him to do. He's an example of what it means to live a life of holy and reverent fear that we're called to have in, in Hebrews as well. We introduced to the terms and, of righteous, and examples of righteousness and favor or grace, they first show up in the story here to help us to see from an example what it means. We have a foreshadowing of the final day of judgment where a few will be saved and it will take everyone by surprise. We have the foreshadowing of Christian baptism, that a few will be saved through water that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3. Our salvation coming through water and faith and wood and the foreshadowing of Jesus himself. So really, uh, what's left of the gospel to cover after looking at all of the things that are, that are introduced to us in the story of Noah? And I hope that this will inspire you as you're reading through familiar Old Testament stories, maybe too familiar, to open your eyes up and see the rich treasures for our benefit that are embedded in those stories. Amen. Amen.